0: I don't wanna go to work I just wanna chill and play All day Lookin' dead in the face and say I wish I could just be Still asleep while you work
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Jobs Blow podcast with Brianna and Josh,
2: the podcast for dreamers with and without day jobs. So
1: glad to be here sharing more inspiring stories as well as perspectives on surviving life and career in, during, around and now still during, but almost out of a pandemic.
2: Do you feel like do you are you feeling any like pandemic freedom? I mean, I certainly I feel it now. I'm more than before.
1: What do you mean? Like you're more comfortable going outside? Well, yeah.
2: And I mean, there are certain places now, CVS, if you've been um, vaccinated, you can go in without a mask on.
1: Right. Um, oh, yeah. I guess like I guess my cautious side is like everybody's like I'm vaccinated, I'm vaccinated. But then you're like, well, who really is vaccinated? Yeah. And how well, do you at least prove we it? live.
2: At least we live in a state where people are like more likely to be to vaccinated. Be cautious.
1: I actually one cool thing is a play that I had done over the pandemic. Uh, we did it like over Zoom, actually, like a Zoom play that was then like used for promoting um, a different cause. Actually, got picked up to be actually staged in uh, Lower New York and Westchester so i might have a chance of being in that but that's in the fall so oh well that's cool about that news that could be cool that's
2: cool well i've also been um i've been down a rabbit hole since um we were planning this show because all right so our guest carrie from the i'm not sorry podcast right brought our guest to us today and go for it, it explain Yes. So it turns out I went to college with this gentleman. And when she told me his name, I didn't recognize it. But I looked at him up on Facebook and recognized his face immediately. So I reached out to him. His name's Tony Duff. And um, he obviously doesn't remember me, which I don't take offense to. Apparently, my face is not memorable. But uh, we started talking about and I think I figured out the class that we were in together in the journalism Uh. school. But then I kept going further and he came in. He'd come into the pizza place that I worked at. There you um, go. And then he, I found out he moved to New York in 1994. I moved to New York in 1994 and right. he goes to West Hampton Beach, Wh-
1: which means he's a perfect guest because of all of the lines that are crossing, which is now where we get our guests from. So perfection is. But what it's just do.
2: funny that it took Carrie, who yeah. met him at a wedding,
1: <laughs> right to
2: like. Connect the connect two of the us dots. when we have been obviously in all these places um, at the same time. Yeah, so if you just had anyway, said
1: hello to each other. But anyway, give the quote that you wanted to give. Today's, the title quote, is, today's
2: quote is Money Never Sleeps. Mm. Um, and the name of the show today is Hitting the Wall with New York Times bestselling author and public speaker, Tony Duff. All right. And I have to ask if either of you know the quote Money Never Sleeps.
1: Is that from the movie Wall Street?
2: It is indeed
1: um, Gordon Gekko. So, Gecko.
2: so. you'll see why
1: that was not a big stretch for me to get that as we talk about this episode. But Tony, how are you?
3: Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. I'm I'm good. Thank you. I can actually do one better. That quote was the scene when he was on the beach at five in the morning and he called Bud Fox, who woke up with a naked Asian woman. <laughs> and he went to the fax machine and picked up the phone. And that's when Michael Douglas said, money never sleeps, pal. Wow. wow.
2: So I have to. So, Terny, um, you are here today and you're going to talk to us about your journey from 1994, your arrival here, um, like me, to be a journalist and then failing a typing test and then going on a completely different path, <laughs> um, which took you to Wall Street and now to being a writer. And so we want to hear about the journey. Um, but, so you obviously are familiar with the film Wall Street. So when you started on Wall Street, did you want to be like those people in that movie? Or were you like, I don't want to ever be like those assholes? Because when I watch that movie, I think they're just horrible human beings.
3: Well, so I actually watched the movie after I got the job. So. I, I accidentally got a job on Wall Street, which is insane because millions of people are dying, killing each other to get jobs. And, and here I am like a hick from Maine. And I just kind of like stumbled upon a job by calling my uncle and not knowing what to say. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't tell him what kind of job I was looking for. And he's like, I'll call you back in, in 10 minutes. So he called me back and he's like, "All right, you got ten interviews this week." I was like, "For for what?" He goes, "I'll just say you want to get into sales." I'm like, uh, uh, "Okay." And so, two days later, I'm standing in front of Seven World Trade Center in my filings basement, untailored suit, you know, looking up at this giant, you know, skyscraper, and I walk into Lehman Brothers, and it was like right around the opening bell, and and this is pre technology, right? So so when the opening bell hit, it was chaos, right? It's men and women screaming at each other and it's just like, what are they screaming? Like, what, are, what are they even
1: screaming? Bye.
2: I never are understand they that. By right.
3: so, so. How oh, bye. <laughs>
1: like I don't
3: I know. I need a chaos. chicken sandwich. <laughs> uh, and I and I said, I go, I don't know what's going on, but I want in, right? Really? And, See, and that I would knew- have been
2: the opposite. I would have been like, this is fucking insane. I want nothing <laughs> to do with this.
3: Well, it I mean, they seemed like my people, right? Because like I wasn't a very good student. I was an okay student. Um, but these people did not seem like, you know, they were the people hanging out at the library, you know, on the weekends.
1: And having like um, quiet listening discussions about life and philosophy.
3: <laughs> right. They were they getting were the out animals. their angry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they <laughs> were angry at each other.
3: And 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 th- this is actually very similar to my decision. To, to go to Ohio university the day before I was recruited to play football at Denison. And uh, I went there and, and the, the coach is taking me around. And they brought me into a dorm room and these two kids were kind of like studying and they might even have computers. And this is 1989. And I was just like, what is going on? And the very next day uh, I went down to Ohio university and they brought me into, into, into a dorm room and there were like four dudes sitting around watching a movie at 11 a.m. And I was like, that's me. <laughs> I've,
2: right been to, there, I've been to Denison. I don't I, you made the right choice. Yeah.
3: So right then and there, I was like, I, that's me. And so uh, I was drawn to Wall Street um, by the by the high pace intensity. You know, it felt like going to a casino. Um, and so once I got a taste of it, I set out to 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 get a job. And I, eventually I did. I ended up at a place called Morgan Stanley. And, you know, just to give you the quick cliff notes, I'm a B student from Ohio University with a 970 SAT. Like, I do not belong at Morgan Stanley. And so during the day, I'm sitting next to a guy from Harvard, a woman from Duke on my right, and I, I have no shot. I can't move the needle. Uh, I have no chance of standing out of my job. But what I figured out was at happy hour, I could crush the guy from Harvard. I could crush the woman from Duke. They didn't stand a chance. And so I quickly realized that sort of the nighttime social antics, networking was going to be sort of my key uh, or my path. And so that's that's kind of what happened. And it I had sort of a meteoric meteoric rise. Um, Did you things, feel you
2: honed those skills at, on Court Street? Is that where you learned? Uh, your I skills? think
3: I mean, I think that's where it started. Right. I think my public relations degree, I was able to sort of equate that to just like personally. And, and, and I think I sort of, and also I think um, due to lack of any other skill, whether it was like from third grade or, or whatever, I've always sort of had to be a talker. I've had to like mm-hmm. become friends with my teachers because like I needed that B minus to be bumped up to a B. Mm-hmm. Um, and so It just kind of, it, it, it worked for me. And, uh, you know, I, I made a living by going out, being fun and sort of becoming the guy, you know,
1: did you, did your, you were a journalism major, but did you like really try hard in that direction at any point? Like at that time, were you like, I'm going to get an internship and, and just work for nothing at the city desk or something like that.
3: So, um, I graduated uh, in June, then I had to take one more summer session. I ended up back in Kennebunk, Maine, uh, the summer of '93, and I tried from the summer of '93 till December to get a job in like PR um, at a magazine, you know, something uh, from Maine. So I'm sending out resumes and, you know, so it's
2: in envelopes, not (laughs) not email. You were actually mailing.
3: And it was a four o'clock trip to the mailbox every day, like fingers <laughs> crossed. Uh, and then it just it wasn't. So just working.
1: wasn't working out, is what you're saying. Yeah.
3: And then so I moved January 9th, nineteen ninety four, and again I'm, I'm hitting roadblocks. And so one day I decide that I was going to go to Sports Illustrated, and so like I roll in uh, to the building, and there's a security guard, and I was like, "Hey, man," I'm like. um, I'd like to go up to Sports Illustrated. And he goes, do you have an appointment? I was like, "Um, no, I just want to drop off a resume, maybe shake some hands. The guy looks at me like I'm an alien. He just goes, (laughs) mail it. And he just turns around and walks away. Right. Right. I, I mean, I was so naive when I moved to the
1: city. Right, well, I you,
2: think we I think that's how we got here, though. not you know, yeah. if I if I wasn't naive, I don't know that I would have come.
1: No, but it is an interesting it is interesting that you realize that like, OK, th- my best foot forward right now is my personality and my ability to schmooze and listen and make contacts and network. Right. And it played. It worked. Right. I mean, you were like, OK. I mean, that's, and that's honestly, like crazy. you would have been
2: great in PR if those were your skills. Those for me, <laughs> are, that's where I don't I am not somebody that schmoozes. I am not a schmoozer. Well, so Josh <laughs> and I are probably two people that know the least about Wall Street. So yes, your book is called The Buy Side. So do you want to continue telling your journey, but also enlighten us on what the hell that means?
3: Sure. Uh, in the simplest terms, the buy side is basically the client. Uh, so I used to buy and sell stocks, but, um, we, we, we would, i um, also, we, we would refer to the buy side basically it's just as the client. Um, so I worked at a hedge fund, um, and we, you know, we manage, you know, $1.4 billion. Uh, and, and the idea was, you know, people would pay us a management fee and give us 20% of the profits. Because we were professionals and we were be able, we were we were doing it all day, every day. So wealthy people were willing to give up twenty percent of the profits and pay us a management fee, uh, so they just didn't didn't have to look at their finances. And so, um, you know, in the simplest terms, the buy side is mutual funds, hedge funds, people with their own account um, at home, and the sell side are brokers. Got it. Like banks. And And what kind
1: of stocks, anything in particular that you were working on or was it all around the full spectrum?
3: Uh, I, I, for, for most of my career, I I was trading healthcare, but I've, I've traded everything.
2: So Tony, in one of your interviews, you talk about kind of that moment at your desk when an opportunity fell in your lap and it was kind of the moment where you made a decision. And I think it was, the decision, a moral decision in a way that that y- you had to decide between your career and your soul. <laughs> it, I mean, that's what I got when I heard the interview, the whispered call.
3: Right. Uh, and you you want me to.
2: Yeah. Expand because, uh, you know, Josh doesn't. I mean, it.
3: so th- there was a moment, um, you know, I'm late, late 20s, maybe maybe even early 30s. Uh, and I was at the Sedge Fund called the Galleon Group. And I got a phone call and this guy was whispering and I couldn't really hear what he said. And I was like, Gallion, he's like, Jeffries is gonna upgrade to Amazon in six minutes. And I was like, excuse me? And, and he's just like click and he hangs up on me. And I was like, wait a minute. He just told me that Jeffries, which is a broker, is gonna upgrade to Amazon in six minutes. So I look at the stock and I was like, oh my God. I'm like, what, what do I do? I'm like, you know, if, if I don't buy the stock, and it goes up, you know, this guy's going to call my bosses back and like expect like a high five or something. And, and I'm like, well, if I do buy it, like, isn't, isn't that illegal? And so like, I kind of had a choice to make, and I ended up buying a hundred thousand shares. And uh, sure enough, six minutes later, Jeffries upgrades the stock. Uh, it shoots up five points immediately. I make a half a million dollars in less than a couple of minutes. And I was like, wow. I was like, you know, if I got this call every day, like, I'd be a great trader. (laughs) uh, Is that
2: the secret to good traders then? I mean, is that, is that what (laughs) you're telling us?
3: It, it helps for sure. Um, But, you know, at that time uh, I can also look back um, and realize that it's also the same time where I started making decisions based on consequence you know, not right and wrong, the thing, you know, what I was taught kind of growing up. And and so in my early 30s, I started making decisions based on, will I get caught? Like, is anyone going to find out? How many people am I going to piss off? Like, it was purely consequence versus just like doing the right thing. And uh, it took me, it took me a while to kind of get back, back on track.
2: Would you say that your drug addiction is a result of that making partly i I
3: mean i think i think regardless i would have been an addict no matter what uh you know i'm kind of one of these hybrid nature nurture like i think it it, both elements um but if i if i'd become a a school teacher or let's say you know a journalist um i still could have fallen into uh the same same trappings the difference would have been you know, I might have had to steal money to get my cocaine, right? Rather than right. just have tons of money. Well,
1: um, well, do you think that it was it was because of the lifestyle, so that it just made it easier to fall into some kind of drug use, as opposed to like saying a teacher and then having to like drink your face off on Friday nights or something. Yeah, I
3: mean, I I, I think I was attracted to the lifestyle because of what was already sort of going on within mm-hmm. me. Um, so the drugs and alcohol are more a uh, a symptom of. Of my, my issues. Um, right. And so, you know, I don't, I a hundred percent do not blame wall street. Uh, you know, th- this is my own, my own journey.
1: I have, I have another question then. So, it's early normally i would ask something like this later but because we're touching on it so you're making decisions breaking the rules knowing that it's consequence based right but you're making a ton of money and you're finding great success right do you think there's an element to success at any level where you gotta break the rules like i mean it's not advice you give it in a classroom but would you say that that's kind of part of it at some point yeah
3: but you know there's long term risk to that right so i definitely played it fast and loose but you know some some of the issues sometimes is you know if you if you cut one corner you know what what does that mean 5 years from now right like um so you know that's that's always a uh, a, a risk um but also you know there there is there is a reason uh, to, I'm not, I'm not saying cheat or, or cut corners, but sometimes you do have to take risks. Um, so it's, it's a very delicate balance. Um, you know, for me, my, I guess would, I would say my, my special sauce was uh, I was genuine. Right. So there were, there were tons of people who were like me who were, who were very kind and uh, you know, said please and said thank you and wanted to, you know, generally know how you were doing and and treated everyone kind of with the same respect. Um, but I truly meant it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I think people just instinctively can can tell the difference of someone who's trying to get in my pants and, and someone who's just generally a good person.
2: I wanted to ask you when your career on wall street came to an end, was it because of the drug addiction or, were you just was it a combination of things?
3: So um, you know, spoiler alert to the end of my book. So after my second drug and alcohol rehab, I took a very humbling sales job selling a sort of junior varsity newsletter, right? And I'm 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 like going back to former friends and colleagues on Wall Street, and I'm like, hey, you know, can I get a meeting? Will, will you buy this like thirty thousand dollar? A year, you know, research newsletter, and it—it was—it was—it was embarrassing, and um, but it was, you know, kind of what I needed at the time, and so I end up in this, you know, huge, huge billion-dollar hedge fund, and 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 I'm talking to the guy, and all of a sudden he just he's like, "How much are you gonna make next year?" I was gonna make thirty grand, right? And I um, go three hundred, and he goes. I got a seven figure job because I want you to come back tomorrow. I was like, uh, 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 okay. And so the next day I show up and I'm like, I meet with human resources and um, I, I the interview and, and they're like, we'd like you to come back you know, another day. And so I'm, I'm starting to get nervous that, that I'm going to get this job. And I come back and I ace that interview and they're like, all right, you need to come back one last time, meet the head honcho. <clears throat> and, and the job is yours. Right. And so, that night I was just kind of panicking. I was like, I knew it wasn't right. Like that's not where my heart and soul were. And so I ended up going to the interview and I'm sitting there. The guy's got a, like the contract on the table. Right. And he's the head of the firm mm-hmm. and, and he's sitting there and it was something came over me. Like, I don't, I don't know what it was, but the guy says, he goes, he's like, you know, so we're a global firm. And you know, so you're going to have to come in maybe once, uh, one Saturday a month, he you goes know, maybe, you know, one late night, you know, a month, um, you know, to work overseas markets. And I go, yeah, I'm like, I have a four year old daughter. I'm like, I, I don't think that's gonna work. And the guy's looking at me like, like I'm an alien. And so he's like, all right, he's like, well, he's like, I hear you're, you know, you're, you're a great healthcare trader. And I and I kind of looked at him. And I was like, you know what? I'm like, I haven't traded healthcare in six six years. Yeah. And the guy's looking at me now, like, was he? Like, what is he doing? Mm-hmm. And so I self sabotaged the the interview, and at the end of it, I didn't I didn't get the job, and and I walked out of there, and I felt free for the first time ever. So
1: yeah.
3: I was able to walk away from the money, and it sort of freed me. And I'm, I'm not saying that I couldn't have stayed sober uh, if I stayed on the walls uh, stayed on Wall Street, but it just was not fulfilling this this void that I'd spent 15 years filling with sex, porn, money, drugs, alcohol, power, you name it. I was trying to fill this void and 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 it wasn't working. And so by leaving Wall Street, I was able to start writing and that's really kind of when I started to see some internal growth.
2: So you were back to where you started essentially with Pretty your- much. And so can you talk to us a little bit about your if then you know, um, what you talked about in your TED talk. Sure. Because I think that's um, really insightful. And I think it, it's helpful for people who I think a lot of people live their lives with that <laughs> mentality.
3: Yeah, uh, it was it was it was huge when I finally discovered it. But so my entire life, I've sort of lived by this premise. If then if I got X, then I would feel Y. And so when I was at Morgan Stanley making twenty two thousand dollars a year, I'd be at the bar with my friend saying, you know, if I could just make $50,000 a year, then all of my problems would be solved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually started making $50,000 a year. And I'd be like, you know, if I could get that girl, then I would be happy. Mm -hmm. And then I got that girl. And then I'd be like, you know, if I could become a trader at a hedge fund, then I would have a career, got a job as a hedge fund as a trader, you know? So fast forward uh, a couple of years and uh, I'm living in Tribeca in a 2,700-square-foot apartment, triplex. It's like Christmas Eve. I'm there wow. by myself, wow. and I'm I'm dialing the 1-800 number to Chase because it's before online banking. I punch in my account number, and the automated voice is like, your balance is 1,800,700. I hit repeat. Your balance is 1,800 wow. Repeat. And I sat there because I felt like I thought the money was going to make me feel better, and- And, and, and the thought that I had shortly after that was if I could make $3 million next year, then all of my problems would be solved. And so, you know, obviously my life blew up epically, went to two rehabs, this, that, and the other thing. And I wrote a book, came out in 2013. Uh, At this point I was a few years sober and my publisher calls me and says, Hey, attorney's like, um, there's, there's a good chance you're going to make the New York Times a list. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. If I make the New York Times a seller list, then <laughs> then I'm going to have this new career, and then I'm finally going to be happy. And it only took about 30 minutes where I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, I'm doing it again. And so it's so not it's that, that like,
1: I, that like the part of the addictive personality? Like you're addicted to the
3: kind of I, chase? Uh, I don't think. I think way more people. Uh, struggle with this. I I think a lot of people fall into this trap. So I don't necessarily think it's an an addiction thing. I think that, um, we, we are programmed, especially Americans Mm -hmm. to believe that certain things are going to fix us when it's all, it's all internal. And so, uh, the biggest difference for me is not that I've cured myself. It's that I'm aware, right? Like this is what I do. And so, I need to sort of, you know, stop it before it, 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 it ends up kind of snowballing. And so, I, I know that I'll put terms on future happiness saying, you know, if I get this, then I'll feel this. And, 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 and I know it doesn't work. So, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's more of a matter of kind of knowing that, that I do that. But I mean, I'd be surprised if the majority of your listeners don't think something, whether it's a house a relationship, some, a certain definitely number of money, money
2: definitely money. I mean, yeah. I, during, I had that 22,000, if I could make 50,000 moment. You I just know? had that
1: conversation today.
2: If yeah, we could just I mean,
1: make this amount, everything would be
2: fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at some point you hit a place where you decide you're going to live in your, in the present and be comfortable. And you know i i think i finally hit got to that spot um i don't know but i definitely right. agree with you i think everybody has that but i want you to tell josh for your 34th birthday who you hired to play
1: <laughs> what well, well, what
2: for his 34th birthday party i want him to tell you why you're had, still while you're still perform yes
1: in the middle of right middle of wall street life who performs
3: yeah. No, i had um I used to throw these parties, and so for my 34th birthday party, I had uh, Naughty by Nature uh.
2: <laughs> Another parallel, Josh. Wow. Another parallel. Josh has. A are we only
1: interviewing to- these people to give us advice for the week? Like, are they our therapist? Like, connecting us? This is what I think our job is. I have a connection to them too, but that's wild. Where aren't they great? That that must have been. And that, that was, was phenomenal. Top, that was the top of their career. And I've been, I've been to their, I've been on stage with them for their concerts and they throw a, a show. They know how oh, it to was. Yeah, a it show.
3: was, it was, it was incredible.
1: Wow. That's cool. Who'd you go? Who'd, who'd you connect to Vinny
3: Oh my God. I mean, it's, we're talking 2000, October, 2003. So I, oh. I have no idea. He probably my, went Mike, through
2: can... their management and
3: right. Well, so my original connection going back to my friend, Jesse, who was a rapper um, mm. in the early nineties, he connected me, but like, like one party I threw, I remember this was pretty wild. Um, I had Dougie fresh perform yeah. a, few t- a few times at my party. And this was wild because he performed a few times in a small venue, a place called canal room down in Tribeca. Uh, and then fast forward, like a year later, they had him sort of emceeing American Idol when American Idol was at its height. And I'm like, you went from my party to <laughs> performing in front of 70 million people. Wow.
1: That's
2: so funny. Wow. So so Wait, you wrote. Oh, sorry.
3: I
1: just wanted to clarify real quick. You said all these things weren't making you happy. Did you ever find something or is there one? Is there a one word answer that ever did ultimately make you happy that you weren't if then about?
3: Uh wait say that last part again. Well, you
1: were you were talking in your TED talk, and you just told us about you know saying if then you know and this right. kind of chasing the white rabbit constantly. Is there anything that ever did eventually? Sure. Um, so, make So
3: happy and satisfied. Real real quick. Uh, 2011. I'm living in Long Island City, and another I,
2: parallel. <laughs> I know. I was
3: I was I was two years sober. Um, I had made all of my that they'd gone flawlessly. I was getting along great with my ex. I was seeing my daughter every single day or talking to her every day. And I just got a gigantic uh, contract from Random House for a book deal. Wow. And I still wasn't happy. And I was like, "Something, something's wrong with me, right? right. So I went to the computer and I, and I looked up The Pursuit of Happiness because I wanted to know what it meant in 1776. And so what I learned was it was shocking, but... The definition of happiness back then was honor, courage, integrity, how you live your life. And I was like, wait, what? Like I thought it was pleasure material things. Right. And so on that day I, I decided to say fuck happiness and I decided to make serenity. My goal, my goal was going to be serenity because my definition of happiness cannot be sustained no matter what it can't be sustained, but it. serenity can be sustained whether I have good, bad or a different day I can maintain a level of serenity. And so once I focus on trying just to be a good person to try to have serenity and try to have some peace and calm, I've never been happier.
2: Although I have to say going from Wall Street to Hollywood, <laughs> probably not the best choice of career path. Well, the, you know, I want to hear about <laughs> that,
1: too. Let's talk about that.
2: Well, yeah, no. So you, you wrote the buy side and it launched and we were talking earlier. You sold the rights to Sony. Yeah. So take us from from there and where, to where you are now.
3: Oh, I mean it's it's a whirlwind. But uh, so I sold the rights to Sony. Uh, it seemed like something was going to happen. Uh, they were engaging with um, Tova Grace, um, a couple of other people. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the Wolf of Wall Street came out, and Billions came out, and so my my book just kind of went away. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, I got I got some opportunities. I was in front of the camera for a show with CNBC called The Filthy Rich Guide. I was writing for them. Uh, I ghost wrote two books, uh, a couple of New York Times bestsellers. Um, I was kind of just piecing together. I started doing speaking gigs. Um, and I was just kind of like trying to, to eke out a career. And it wasn't until uh, 2018 where i sort of just said, you know, it's, it's, film and television that really sort of excites me and and gets me up and up in the morning. And so I sort of made an effort, um, to kind of focus on that. I started turning down ghostwriting gigs and, um, I, I just focused on that. And I ended up getting a development deal, um, in 2019, um, with a studio and, you know, almost sold a show to HBO max and, uh, Later later in 2020, I ended up almost selling another show to ABC. I'm currently developing um, a feature. Uh, I was hired to write an adaptation of an Oscar-nominated um, documentary. Uh, it was this year. It was called The Mole Agent. And it um, is basically a 82-year-old recluse man, widower, ends up being hired to investigate the uh, alleged neglect and abuse of a patient at a retirement home. And so it's kind of like James Bond in a retirement home. And so (laughs) I wrote that and they're, they're looking for a filmmaker. Uh, So, uh, you know, the reason I was talking about the money before wasn't because I'm bragging because I'm, (laughs) you know, the money's gone. Uh, But, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine doing anything else than, you know, waking up and, trying to write and stay sober and, you know, do my thing.
1: That's it. First of all, it's incredible because we all know from the Hollywood side that people are writing things constantly and pitching and it's like impossible to get positive feedback, let alone, you know, somebody who's willing to help you. So it's kind of great in a way that you had a story to tell. Right. And, you know, it's opened (laughs) all these other doors, but one in reading up on you a little bit before the interview, there was something that, I guess this is a way I live. And I was wondering where your head was at during it. But like you're making 500,000, then you're making a million, then you're making more than that. Right. Is there ever a point in time? I always feel like if I ever got to that point where I just hit something big and I was making that money, and even if I was out of control and working for a Mexican drug cartel, <laughs> I would still be like putting money aside for the maybe what if this isn't here all the time. So where where does that mentality fall in? Like, oh, I'll do that later. Or like, does it ever hit you? You know, like, oh, I got I'll put this five hundred thousand aside for. Yeah. Something. Do
2: you ever think about the fact that you probably could have retired and never right. had to work another day? Because that is <laughs> yeah, immediately I mean, what I think
3: <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and everyone's different. But I, I would say the one thing uh, that I completely misjudged was, you know, being, let's you know, say, 30, 33 years old and making two million dollars um, what, why would I think it was ever going to end?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Like, cause you've seen the movies, damn I'm 30,
3: but I'm 33, <laughs> like I got at least another 15 years of this. Right. Like, right. Um, so that was part of it. Um, and then, you know, I, I made a million dollar investment into, uh, casual dining, uh, concept called fat burger. Right. I own the state. Yeah. I own the rights to the state of New Jersey. I got into bed with the wrong people ended up losing you know a million dollars after taxes and you know like that stings
1: you yeah know? wow <laughs> i wow. bought
3: i bought a house bought a house in memorial day of 2007 right like right. literally
2: right before the height oh, yeah. oh my so God. did you did you at least squirrel away college money <laughs> like did <laughs> you squirrel away anything
3: Um, I could, I can definitely afford to send my daughter to Ohio University.
2: Okay. Well, you know, it's like three times what it was when we went there. It's It's still cheap. But it's still crazy that it's three times. It was 7,000 when we went. That was cheap. (laughs) Although I was in state. You were out of state. So maybe it was cheaper for me.
3: It was still really cheap.
2: Yeah. No. So are you writing a second book? I thought I read that.
3: You probably did read it. Um, I am currently Write Uh, ghost writing a book or kind of ghost writing a book. Um, I've had a couple of books that are sort of in my computer that aren't complete. Um, so will they come out at some point? Maybe, but, uh, right now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of focused on this, um, feature screenplay that I'm working on.
1: I, you know, I've been writing a lot, especially over the pandemic and, um. Everybody talks. It's funny. Some people when they say like, oh, like, hey, I, you know, I finished a, a feature and they're like, oh, my God, congratulations. It's so hard to do that. And like I I've other writing projects have, have been very hard for me, but I found it so not easy. But like once you get into it and you just see where it's going, I just felt like it was like I was throwing it up. It was just coming right out of me. How do you yeah. feel about that as far as the writing process?
3: Um. You know, I used to be a, a person who liked to, to wing it. Like I didn't like to sort of outline or develop. And um, I quickly learned how sort of important or how much it, could, it can help the process, right? Um, so I feel like the more pre-work I do, the more like it will just come flying out of me. So the the pilot that I wrote that ended up getting me my manager and kind of like opening up all of these doors for me. um, I basically loosely based it off of my life. Uh, It was called has been. And I basically had it um, start where my book left off. Right. So it's a 40, 40 year old guy back from a second rehab, living in a house that's going into foreclosure, half furnace, girlfriend gone, daughter gone. And he opening scene, he's at the doctor's office. And this really happened to me. And he's looking at the form and he's filling it out. It's was like name, birthday, social security number. And then all of a sudden he looks down at this, this line. He's like, he doesn't, doesn't know what, what to to do. And it says emergency contact. Right. So I sat there in the doctor's office and I'd blown myself up. So epically, I couldn't think of a single person to write down as emergency contact. And And it was sad and pathetic and whatnot. But so for that pilot, At no point did I not know what was going to happen, right? Like he goes to Jen, my ex, to see if she'll say yes, and she doesn't. Then he goes to his cousin and then he goes to his old best friend roommate. She doesn't. Then he goes to his party friend and like he's trying to sell his house. And like and so like at no point did I not know what was going to happen. I wrote the thing in 10 days.
1: Yeah.
2: Wow. So when you when you fell apart and when it all came tumbling down, all the people that you thought were your friends, did they scatter? I mean, did you have any loyal people?
3: Yeah, I, I was surprised by some people, um, both positive positively and negatively. Uh, some people who I thought were going to really kind of be there for me uh, ended up just disappearing, and it was kind of like, wait, what? I thought I thought we were we were friends. The drug
2: dealer didn't stick around.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and there were um, there were other people who. I was kind of like, oh, like you you still like you still care. And so uh, it actually ended up being a very healthy spring cleaning. Right. Like at that point, I knew like I knew who was real and who wasn't.
2: Well, I have to say, when you painted the picture of calling Chase and listening to how much money yep. you had, but the fact that it was Christmas Eve and you were by yourself, the, to me, that said more than how much money you had in your bank. Oh, Totally. Totally. So, wow, yeah, uh, I have to say, um, Josh and I thought we hit it really big on our podcast when we had an adult film star because of the name of our show. <laughs> but I really was toying with the fact that you had a job and you were doing blow. <laughs> I was like, there's something there, Josh. There's a name. Right. Right. Was that, was that the worst of
1: your of your vices? Or did you get into anything worse? Oh, yeah, I was
3: I was inducted into the Cocaine Hall of Fame. Like, you were? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Wow. Do you have wow. any health, any health problems because of that?
3: Not that I know of. Wow. Um.
2: All right. So for you want to move into our game, real life versus real life.
1: OK, so preface it, though, so we have an in, end point.
2: Right. So real life being. R-E-A-L and real life being R-E-E-L. So your life um, on Wall Street, the reality version versus what most of us people who have no fucking idea what goes on down there, only what we see in the movies. Uh, So the R-E-E-L life. So now let's get into the game. Real life versus real life. (laughs) So how do you feel your experience differs from the existing Wall Street movies?
3: my experience was probably oh that's that's i mean it's tough right because they only show you certain elements um you know the day to day was slower but uh you know my my nights were definitely you know more more deviant
2: than what we've seen <laughs> in the movies yeah. oh wow oh now i'm scared Okay. Um, who would, you, if if your film was made, who would who would play you?
1: Well, that's tough. Um, hey, can I play it, please?
2: <laughs> sure. I'm just um, trying to get Josh a job. At, a at job. one
3: point, I thought Emil Hirsch could could do a good job.
2: Oh yeah, he's kind of disappeared. He'd probably be glad that you think that. I
3: think I think he had some addiction issues.
2: Oh well, look at that. There you go. Um, most outrageous real life moment during that time, and now that you you've piqued my interest, so
3: um, I don't know if this is most outrageous, but um, for a small time, my claim to fame was smoking a blunt with Tone Loke Um, but, <laughs> shut up. Yeah, but funky Cole
1: I, Medina,
2: yeah, yep. wild thing.
3: And then I think it got trumped in two thousand in. Three, I was down at South Beach and, and I mean I was I was getting after it and all of a sudden this woman comes up to me and she's like, she looks at me and she goes, You are a rock star. And I think I do a double like take. And it was Tara Reid. And I was like, oh, no, that's
0: like, I just got
3: knighted.
1: Yeah, I have hit rock bottom and top at the same time. Wow. Wow.
2: wow. OK. Um, and the last one, how do you feel about being a cautionary tale for other people? Um.
3: I like it. I mean, I think the reason I, I like it or I'm OK with it is because it's honest. Um, and I would say one of the greatest gifts I got from writing my book was for 40 years, I used to, like we were talking before, but I used to make decisions on like, how many friends will this gain me? How many will I lose? Like, should I make this decision or not? And so when I wrote the book for the first time ever, I just told the truth. I didn't, I didn't worry about what people were going to think and, you know, thankfully the response to the book was, 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 was great. And it it was very positive. And what I learned about myself was I would rather you not like me than for you to like me because I only showed you one, one, you know, sort of side of myself. And so uh, being a cautionary tale, but, but being authentic, like I'll take that all, all day.
2: Would you do it again? Yeah. Wow. You would even ev- everything you went through.
3: 100%. There's no way I could be the person I am today with without okay. it. Do I wish I didn't maybe hurt some people along the way? Of course, right. but there's no way I could have had the wisdom that that I've been fortunate enough to to gain
1: experience. Yeah. What's incredible is that you is that you. You, you're you're basically and we talked about this uh, Brianna and other episodes too but about like you know somebody who's kind of lived through this and walked through the fire and you have a truth to tell you have an outrageous truth to tell and you're basically like exposing that life like Wall Street to the most of us and Wolf of Wall Street their movies at but your book is like the real life you know you know living through that and there have been other uh, celebrity types well, Wolf and of big Wall names.
2: Street wasn't that that was it true was celebrity. it
1: was but I'm saying like These, What I'm saying is that people who have a crazy, outrageous uh, story to tell are usually the ones people want truth right now. That's why true crime podcasts are so big. You know, they want that that access to that world. And it's interesting because you could try to make it up and it's never going to go as far as what the real actual truth is. And like, look, you've uh, kind of you've created other opportunities for yourself you know, just by telling your own true story.
2: Well, I just think it's funny, Tony, because we like I said, we arrived here at the same time, took totally different paths. And here you are here on my podcast.
1: There it is. So funny. Yep. Right well, on.
2: thank you so much for uh, being here and for telling your story. It was thank really, you for really having really me. Quite powerful. Do you have any social channels you want to share?
3: Um, I mean, um, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, just turn it up and. My website, com
1: T U R N E Y D U F F.
2: You really had the name. I mean, it was kind of like your name. You were, oh, something was going to happen.
3: Like, (laughs) Tony Duff. Well, what is, what is, but you didn't recognize the name.
2: I know. I don't (laughs) know. I told you though, I'm not good at names. Ask I Josh did. though, I will walk down the street in Manhattan and see like an 80s celebrity and like immediately be like, oh my God, there's show itself. She doesn't I, even I,
1: remember my name. She just hits me in the head with a can.
3: <laughs> I did a podcast with Brad Garrett. You know Brad Garrett from yeah. Everybody Loves Him. Yeah. And he, he he spent like the first five minutes just going off about how I had the greatest name of all time. <laughs> Are
1: you named after someone? Where does Turney
3: come from? Turnie's my great great grandmother's maiden name.
2: I thought it might have been a maiden name.
3: And, and claim to fame, my great great grandfather was kicked out of Scotland for drinking, which it's that's really impressive. Should write that
1: a story about happen? that. that that's got to be happen? a
2: script, for God's sake.
1: <laughs> Listen, Tony, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. Check out turn TurneyDuff uh, Follow him. Read his book. Follow the story. Hopefully, the movie comes out. We can we can all enjoy that. Brianna, your Bree Haas one on the socials. And I am Mr. Josh Hyman. We're at Jobs Blow Podcast, JobsBlowPodcast.com. Review, subscribe, tell your friends, share, leave a review. Did I say that? You know what people should do? They should leave a review. I'm going to just repeat myself until people start fucking doing it. Okay. Listen, guys, thanks so much. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.
0: The new law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much.